If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to look with me at Revelation chapter 1 this morning. The words will also be on the screen behind me. But as we begin to think and actually get into the book of Revelation this morning, I want to remind you of what we've been doing. So January through June, we're going to be thinking about this book, the book of Revelation together. So the first four weeks we spent introducing this book of Revelation. So we had a framework by which to understand this entire book. So I want to review that framework. We had four themes that I want us to remember and keep in mind as we actually get into the letter. So the first theme uh, that we need to remember, the first, uh, the first theme to understand the framework to Revelation is this. Um, we started at Genesis 1 and 2. You remember this? So Revelation is connected to Genesis 1 and 2. What Genesis 1 and 2 tell us is that God always completes what he starts. So Revelation is connected to the book of Genesis. So what God says he wants to happen in the world is going to happen. So what God set up in the world will be the way it's supposed to be one day. Matter of fact, when Christ returns, it'll be better. But Revelation is connected to Genesis 1 and 2. Second is the idea of time. We need to think about time in the way that God does. So, the last days started in the first century. We looked at several passages in the New Testament several weeks ago to try to show that to you. The last days started in the first century. So, Revelation is not a book that begins to tell us about the last days. Revelation is a book that gives us a summary of what has happened and will happen until the return of Christ that started in the first century. So unless we understand the trajectory of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, we won't understand Revelation. Unless we understand time and the way God looks at time, we won't understand Revelation. Third, we looked at the chapter in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, and thought about, the, thought about love. Do you remember this? And the point was, there are, things, there are some things we know, and there are some things that we don't. We know that the love of Jesus conquers everything. But there are things we know and things that we don't. And as nebulous as that may sound, that leads us to the fourth theme. The fourth theme is this, Jesus actually accomplished something. He did it. So what we know for sure, that's number three, is that Jesus, number four, actually did something. He is a literal savior. He did not die to make salvation possible. He didn't die to make you savable. He literally died to save his people from their sins. So he actually conquered death, he actually crushed the head of the serpent, and he has been ruling and reigning for the last 2,000 years. He actually did something. So unless you understand those four things, this book of Revelation is going to get really, really wonky because you're going to start importing things that aren't true, that the rest of the Bible doesn't say are true. So that leads us to chapter one this morning. Sound good? Do those four things sound familiar? little bit? Thank you. All right. People are alive even though it's 39 and raining outside, right? Genesis, excuse me, Revelation 1. Listen to this. This is the word of God. This is life. This is where we find life. 
Because this is where we find Christ. Listen to this. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Clear as mud, right? Let's pray. Let's ask God's help. Thank you, Lord, for giving us your word. It is indeed a gift to us. For without your word, we would just be wandering around without direction and without hope. We would know that you're there because creation tells us that. We wouldn't understand a lot about reality and the brokenness of the world and the hope of the world, we wouldn't know Jesus. So we thank you for giving us your word because it brings us to Christ. So as we come to worship, Lord, I ask that you would, that you would diminish our desire to be self-sufficient and that you would increase our hope of greater dependence on Christ. So Lord, 
Less of us, less of our agenda, less of our power, less of our goals, and more of your agenda, more of your power, more of your goals and your mission. Through Jesus, I pray, amen. Have you all ever watched a trailer that ended up being better than the movie that it was a trailer for? Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever decided that you wanted to watch something, but you didn't know exactly what you wanted to watch? And so you're just scrolling through Netflix, and the next thing you know, it's more than an hour, and all you've done is just been binging on trailers because you never actually landed anywhere. Has that ever happened to anybody? I guess I'm the only one. Revelation 1 functions like a trailer. The first chapter of this book is a trailer to the rest of this book. So what we find in chapter 1 is going to be explained and expanded and made more vivid and, and clearer all throughout the rest of the book. So I want us to think about Revelation 1 this morning in terms of a trailer. And this is what I want us to think about. I want us to think about this. I want us to think about the what, the why, and the who. So I want us to think about what is this book about? Secondly, why in the world should we be exploring it together? And third, who is this book focusing our attention on? Got it? So we're going to think about the what and the why and the who. So let's jump in. What is this book about? What is this chapter about? Well, you can tell if you paid attention when we read the first, when we read this chapter together, that there was a, the, the human author of this book is named John, the Apostle John. He was really close to Jesus. He loved Jesus. But what we find in the first few verses is that the Apostle John was actually exiled on an island called Patmos. Did you catch that when we read it? Patmos is an island that at the time in the first century had about 3,000 people on it. Which means it's about the size, if you put that in North Carolina terms, it's about the size of Pembroke, or it's a little bit more than Wrightsville Beach. A small community. And John was there exiled. Oh, by the way, he was at least, he was in his 90s. Can you imagine being exiled when you're in your 90s? He got exiled because the Roman Empire must have determined that he was a real threat to the empire. They thought, this guy is causing so much trouble, we need to get him out of here and send him to an island where hopefully he'll just shut up and die. And while John was there, he was thinking about the church. He was thinking about the church. That's why when we read this chapter together, it talked about the churches of Asia. He greets the churches of Asia, and then he lists seven because it's representative of the whole church. Because remember, since the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and since his sitting at the right hand of the Father, the church has been exploding from Jerusalem to Judea, and it's going to the ends of the earth. That's what has happened since the resurrection of Jesus. And the Apostle John, the one that loves Jesus, is on this island exiled. And we know that he loves Jesus because he's thinking about the church. If you want to know that you love Jesus, 
One of the primary evidences that, it, that, that declares that you love Jesus is that you love his church because the church is for whom Christ died. He died for the church. He laid down his life for the church. He died for the sheep. He has one flock. He has a church, a bride that he loves, that he died for. And John cares about the church, and he's thinking about the church. And he's thinking about the church because he is experiencing persecution, and he knows that other believers are experiencing persecution, and he cares about what's happening. Because, you know, in times of persecution, things get tough, right? Let's just state the obvious. Things are hard when God's people are persecuted, Things are difficult when people are pursuing you because you are a follower of Jesus. And just to be clear about persecution, I did a little bit of research just to try to make this real tangible and clear about what persecution was like. Because remember, you might remember this guy in the Roman Empire named Nero. Remember him? He was around and ruling during the time that the Apostle Paul was still alive. Um, You might remember some of the things that Nero did to people who followed Jesus. Here's an example of persecution. There are several examples of persecution. One that Nero did was famous, was this. He would impale followers of Christ and put them on a stick, and then he would pour tar on them, and then he'd light them on fire. How does that sound? I realize you've had a hard week. I realize you've had loss. I realize you may think that there are lots of things out there that are after you. I realize you may think that so many things are on decline. But did anybody try to impale you and light you on fire? I learned about this one this week. In the first century, another thing that folks used to do to those that were following Jesus is that they would bore a hole in the skull and pour molten lead into that hole, into the brain. How would you like to go out like that? It'd be pretty difficult, wouldn't it? Then there were times in which people would tie up Christians like they would tie their arms together and then attach that rope to a horse at one end and then tie a leg to a horse at the other end and whip the horses so that the horses would run opposite directions and, and rip limbs off of bodies. It kind, of make the, it kind of makes the lion's den sound like a really appealing option, doesn't it? You follow Jesus and you just get thrown in the lion's den, that sounds like a whole lot better option for me if I were able to choose than molten lead to my brain or being ripped apart by horses running opposite directions. John is writing to the churches. Just to make it explicit, look at the, end, the last verse. He says, the lampstands are the churches. He's thinking about the church. He's writing the church because he loves the church because Jesus loves the church. You might say, well, Dave, you still haven't answered the question. What is this book about? Well, you're right. Here it is. I just knew we had to get our bearings and understand who John was. So what is this book about? Look at verse 19. It tells you. Here's what it's about. He states it explicitly, makes it super clear. John, write down the things that you have seen, what you are experiencing, and what's to come. In other words, the book of Revelation is about the past, the present, and the future. 
That means if you have been taught that the book of Revelation is just about the past and exclusively the past, that's wrong. It means if you have been taught that the book of Revelation is exclusively about the future, that's wrong. It's not only about the future, it's also about the present and it's also about the past. And that started in the first century. John is writing this book. God is speaking through John so we might understand what is going on and what it's like for Jesus to reign in the world. Question number two. So that's what this book is about. Two, well, why should we explore this book together? Why should we look at Revelation? Why should, we, why should we spend six months basically looking at this book together? Why should we explore it? Well, verse three makes this unbelievably clear. We ought to explore this book because, as John said, this book is meant to be a blessing. Look at what John says in verse three. Blessed is the one who reads this aloud. Blessed is the one who hears it. And blessed is the one who keeps what is said. Do you see that? This book is intended to bless you and to bless me. And what that means is that if you have ever read this book or ever had any teaching on this book in which the result was to scare you, you have missed the point of this book. It was not written to scare you. It was not written to instill fear. It was not written that it's all about the future. And you understand that through reading current events and cracking this code so that you understand what's really happening. It wasn't written that way at all. It was written to bless. It was written to bless a people who were going through persecution. If someone has ever told you that this book was about helicopters and Russia and all this other stuff, that would mean nothing to the original audience. This book was written, first of all, to the churches in the first century, and it meant something. It meant something for what they were going through day by day, right then, right there. Why should we cover this book? Because God wants to bless his people, and we ought to want to be blessed by God. This book is not written to scare. It is not written to stir up fear, any more fear than we already live by. As I've talked with people over the years, I realize that there is a lot out there about what Revelation is really about that stirs up fear and stirs up anxiety and stirs up uh, uh, um, and tries to scare so I want to read this to you. I got this a number of weeks ago um, as I was thinking about this passage. And um, as a summary, I want to read to you a summary of what many people think that this book is about. And I'm going to tell you, I don't agree with what I'm going to read. But I'm reading it to you because it's a summary. And I think that it encapsulates what a lot of us have heard about this book. Here's what it says. Having studied the Bible here in the last few months, I've been hearing about the second coming of Christ and the events unfolding since I was a kid. The mark of the beast, microchips, no cash, just plastic, martial law, total government dependency or control. 
No one can comprehend how bad it will be till it is. Can our minds and bodies handle what's coming? I wonder what doctor they will have on the news explaining the rapture and the disappearance of so many people. I won't be here for it, but it's just a thought. While the devil is preparing people for the Antichrist, God is preparing people for the rapture. Do you see how this is instilling fear? The point of it is that you need to be concerned about the mark of the beast, that you need to be concerned about some total government control. No one can comprehend how bad things are going to be. So the hope is that we get raptured out, a.k.a. escape. And I want to tell you that this is not what Revelation is about, and it is not what God is teaching us. This view has come into the American church in the late 1800s, and it has taken firm hold in the church in America. And it is not right at all. This book is not written to scare you. It's written to be a blessing. We're supposed to read this book like a picture book. We're supposed to read this book and have it stir up our gospel imagination because Jesus is reigning and he loves the church. This book is written to bless you and to bless me. That's what it says in verse 3. So now we got to go to our third question. Who is this book focusing our attention on? Who is this book focusing our hearts on? Anybody have any takers on this? Want to guess? Jesus. Thank you. Look at how this is written. The first eight verses, John is giving us a greeting. He's talking about how he received this revelation, what it's supposed to uh, communicate about Jesus, and then he starts talking to the churches, grace and peace to you. The first eight verses are the introduction. And then after that, look at verse 10 and following. John hears a voice. He's trying to get us into the story. We're not just receiving his words of grace and peace. He's saying, let me tell you, let me show you what's happening. There was a voice that started talking to me. And this voice said, John, write down the things that you see. And what does John do in verse 11? He turns around and notice the imagery. Notice what it says. He turns around because he wants to see the voice. You can't see a voice. He's trying to stir up your imagination. He's trying to whet your appetite for what he is about to display. He turns to see the voice. And what does he see? Look at verse 13. He sees Jesus in the midst of the churches. He sees Jesus in the midst of the churches. What that means is that no matter what persecution is going on, no matter what is happening, Jesus is alive in the midst of his people. He's right here. I'll say it this way. He is all up in our business. He's all up in your business. He's reading your emails. He's reading your mind. He knows what's going on in the life of his people, in the life of his church whether it's in Greenville, North Carolina, or whether it's in Syria, no matter whether it's in China and underground, no matter where it is, he is in the midst of his people. 
In other words, John is focusing our attention on Jesus. On the Jesus that died, on the Jesus that was raised from the dead, on the Jesus that is at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. He's trying to focus our minds on the glory of Christ and what he has accomplished and now what it means until he returns. And if that doesn't make enough sense of how John is focusing us on Jesus, let's go back to the billboard. Let's go back to the first verse. Let's go back to the first phrase of chapter one that we read together. I wish that it was broken up differently, but it's not. But this is what it says. Look at the first few words of verse one. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? John, what are you talking about? This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. John, I want to be scared about what's going to happen in the future. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is unveiling Jesus, the risen Christ. A few months ago, the Osbournes discovered the Instapot. Y'all know the Instapot? This has saved our lives, okay? This has saved our lives. We have three kids that are going here and there, and meals are difficult. And Jenny, more than me, discovered the Instapot. I don't know if you've seen this thing or not. It is miraculous. Let's just say that. So you take this thing, and you can get different sizes, and you can take this, this, this pot, and what you can do is you can put all kinds of stuff in there. I'm talking like carrots. I'm talking about vegetables. I'm talking about a block of cream cheese. I'm talking about uh, frozen chicken, and you just dump it in there, put the lid on, and hit go. And I don't know how long it takes, but it seems like it takes about 20 minutes, and then the, the alarm goes off. It's like a super crock pot. And all of a sudden the alarm goes off and you let it decompress and then you, and then you take the lid off and you, you open the lid off and boom, it's the unveiling. And, and, and the smell starts oozing out everywhere. And you look in this pot that used to have a frozen chicken, a block of cream cheese, uh, spices, all kinds of other vegetables, and boom, dinner. And you take that lid off and somehow all this stuff just appropriately cooked and here it is. John is telling you and telling me from the beginning, he is saying this is the unveiling of the risen reigning Christ. I'm revealing him to you. He's saying this is what you need we need to have a, we need to be attached to the risen Christ. So, what in the world does that mean? Well, if you look at verses 12 through 18, John gives a description of Jesus. He describes, if you look in those verses 12 through 18, he does it a little bit in the first eight verses, but predominantly verses 12 through 18, he is describing Christ. And it's not so much that he's telling you or telling me what Jesus looks like as he is telling us what Jesus is like. You get that difference? John is describing what Jesus is like. 
In other words, when he uses all these images, he's communicating that there are all kinds of qualities about Christ. He's not just listing them. It's as if those qualities could be put in picture form. And he's saying, look at it, think about it, meditate on it. This isn't what Jesus looks like. This is what he is like. So here's what Jesus is like. Here are a few of the things. His hair is white. It's communicating that Jesus has the quality of someone who has an enormous amount, infinite amount of wisdom and experience. You come down from his hair and John describes the face of Jesus as being bright like the shining sun, which sure would be nice to see that today, but we probably won't. But you know what the sun communicates, right? Warmth, life, clarity. He's saying this is what Jesus is like, his face, church. His face is towards you and it is bright and shiny and warm and you can find life there. His eyes are like fire, meaning that Jesus is profoundly holy and he really, really sees you. He sees you. He sees everything that you're going through. He sees what you're thinking. He sees what you're feeling. He observes everything about you. He knows all your motives. He knows you better than you. And I know that may be intimidating, but John is trying to say in the midst of going through persecution, isn't it nice to have a Savior who is ruling and reigning, who sees you and who looks at you? And whose disposition towards you is one of life and warmth and hope, who's full of wisdom. Out of his mouth comes a double-edged sword. Did you see that? Think about that. Meditate on that. John is saying that the words of Christ are true. Whatever he says is true. It can't be untrue. Everything that he says is absolutely correct. What he says is right. It is truth itself. And his voice is like the roar of mighty waters, which means, I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean recently or the coast recently, just to sit there on the shore, even if there's not a storm, you know what it's like when those ray waves come crashing over? John is saying that Jesus' voice is like a noise that you cannot cancel out. Now, there may be times in your life and times in my life in which the, the voice of Jesus doesn't seem to be as loud as other voices. You know, the other voices we listen to sometimes, the other voices that tell us what's true or what's not, or the other voices that try to define who we are, the ones we struggle with. Well, the voice of Jesus can't ever finally be drowned out. The voice of Jesus can't be quieted. And it's always saying what is true in a way that's loving and full of wisdom. And John adds to that, if you look in verse 18, this. He describes Jesus as the one who has come, the one who has died, the one that rose from the dead. Do you see that in verse 18? The living one, the one who lives again, in other words, John is trying to press in on us the truth of the gospel. 
The message of Jesus Christ, the message of Christianity, the gospel, is that there are historical facts. Historical facts about Jesus. That he really came, that he really literally died, and he really literally physically rose from the dead. That is the declaration of the gospel. Historical fact. We have nothing else to say or bank our lives on other than those historical facts. And John is saying, if you can fathom, John is being, he is being incredibly imaginative and genius here. And he's saying, you understand now that we have a God, we have a Savior who is absolutely sovereign, that he has wisdom, that his face is shining towards you, that he is absolute truth. He is absolutely sovereign and he has come. That he is transcendently glorious and yet he has come to this earth. He is infinitely wise and yet he is approachable. That he holds the stars in his hands. He even says that he has the keys of death and Hades. Did you catch that? Do you know why Jesus has the keys? If you came into my office and said, Dave, can I borrow your car? And I said, yeah, here are the keys to my car. What does that mean? I own that car. John is saying that Jesus is infinite and he has come to us. He is personable and he owns death. He owns it. It can't do anything apart from what he wants. And it can't even do anything to us except bring us closer to Jesus. John is saying when you put all this together, this is why Jesus is so compelling. Because there are times in your life and days in your life in which you desire and need a majestic, glorious, sovereign God, right? There are events that happen in your life in which all you can do is fall on your face like John is dead and say, but I know God is sovereign. Sometimes that's all you got. And there are other days in which it's not so much that you need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God, although that is true. It's that you need to be further convinced that his face really is shining at you like the noonday sun, right? And there are other times in which you need to remember that what he says to you is absolutely true. It's truth itself with a capital T. And you got to take it in, even when he says things about us that aren't so easy to receive sometimes. John is saying, put all of this together. Put these things that seemingly don't fit majesty, sovereignty, and approachability. Put these things together. His face is shining towards you and he is smiling at his people. And at the same time, he has the keys of death and Hades. Beloved, when you start putting these things together and realize this is the Christ that we serve, this is really compelling. Here's a guy who has all power and yet he came to earth he lived in for me and he died, meaning he took my judgment. 
Yes. He died for me, meaning that he went ahead of me into death and was raised on the third day, which means he just blasted a hole out the back of death so that when I go into the grave, I go through it into Jesus. John is trying to get our imaginations firing on all cylinders because at the end of the day, beloved, this is what it means to grow. It means that we become more like Christ. It means that you got to look at your life and you got to realize, huh, there are probably some things in my life that I need to be a little bit more confident in and other things that I need to be a little bit more humble in. Because Jesus was profoundly confident and yet the most humble person ever. It means that when you look at your life, you need to realize, like Jesus, no one was more passionate than Jesus. But his passion was with perspective. His passion never gave him tunnel vision. He was passionate and yet understood the perspective of everything that was going on. Don't we need more of that? Some of us perhaps need more passion in our lives. Others of us need more perspective. And we need them both. Jesus was more driven than anyone else. And yet... He knew that he needed and wanted to work with people. In our culture, drivenness is like you just get people to follow you. Don't really work with them. You just put them in place to do what you want. Jesus, profoundly driven, and yet worked with a team. It was empowering a team. It was empowering his church. People like you and me. All this boils down to this description It's in verse 8 and in verse 17, where John says and records for us that Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Do you see that? I think it's in verse 8. Maybe it's verse 9. Did I get it wrong? It's in verse 8. And in verse 17, he says, I'm the first and the last. He's saying the same thing. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. What that means is that Jesus is the first. He's the alpha. He's the first. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying, I am first, meaning I am uncreated. I am beginningless. I have no one that created me. I didn't start. I've always existed. I am first. And what that means for people like you and me is that we have to have a reference point. And it has to be external. And the point of Christianity is to say you will never understand yourself until you get outside of yourself. And if the only way that you're trying to understand yourself is to look within, you'll never understand yourself. The only way to understand yourself is to get outside of yourself and have an external reference point by which you can understand who you are. And you can understand your desires, and you can understand your passions, and you can understand your gifts, and you can understand your failings, and you can understand your successes. That is only properly understood through Jesus. Because if he is not your starting point in understanding who you are, you will never find out who you are and who you are supposed to be. He is the start And he is also the omega, the last letter. He is the last. It means he is the thing 
that everything is moving toward. Everything in your life, everything in history, every event, every year, is all going to end up with Jesus. It means he is the final destination. He is in absolute control, and everything is working its way to him. That means everything in your life, whether you realize it or not, is moving you toward him as much as you want to resist it, as much as you want to run away from it, as much as you want to ignore it. Everything is moving you toward Jesus in your life. Everything. Your parenting, your job, your successes, your failures, your needs, your wants, your accomplishments, your financial whatever goals. Everything is moving you toward Jesus. He is the Alpha and he is the Omega. The fact of the gospel is that Jesus literally came, literally died, and literally rose from the dead. And what that means to take that gospel in is to recognize he's my reference point and everything about me is defined by what he says and where I'm going is defined by where he has been. And that means that you only have two choices this week. You only have two ways of looking at life. It means that God is a means to your goals or your ends, or everything in your life is a means to Jesus. That's it. There's really no other option. There's no other way to look at reality. Either God is the way that I think I can get my goals accomplished, or everything in my life is the means by which I'm getting to Jesus. Do you remember Jonah? Remember this guy in the Old Testament, this crazy story about him getting swallowed by a fish? Remember this? He, he finally, reluctantly, went to this place he didn't want to go, to Nineveh. Remember this? He didn't like the people of Nineveh. As a people, they were repulsive to him because he was a Jew and he didn't think they deserved anything. And God said, Jonah, you got to go to Nineveh and you got to preach the good news to them. So lo and behold, Jonah finally went, reluctantly went, and what happened? Doggone it, those Ninevites repented. And Jonah was like, I knew you were going to be merciful. I knew you were going to be gracious. And he decided to sit in a lawn chair outside of Nineveh and wait for the big meteor to strike Nineveh and blow it up. Remember, that's the last chapter, right? Do you get how Jonah was living? God was the means to Jonah's goals and Jonah's ends. He thought himself superior to other people. He wanted his people to have more power. So God was the means by which his people would thrive. And those, those Ninevites, they'd be put down forever. God was the means by which Jonah thought he could get his ends, his goals. Maybe some of that resonates deeply. You know, having God as a means to my goals, you know, God as a means to my political goals, God as a means to my best life, God is a means to my financial security, 
In other words, if I just follow certain rules of God and principles of God, then I will get the goals that I want. So I end up just rummaging through the Bible looking for principles and I just work those principles so that God is a means by which I get the result and the goals that I want. In other words, I just try to master all these principles and work them. And that way, God gives me ultimately what I want. Principles, implementation, and I get the goal that I'm looking for. Or, or, everything is a means to get you and me to Jesus. So that all of my jobs, my, whatever job I have, whatever season of life I'm in with my job is a means by which I get Jesus. So my job is a way that I understand my skills. It's a way I understand my failures. It's I understand the way that people view me through this and all of that takes me to Jesus because I don't always agree with how people view me. Maybe you don't either. It means that all my relationships are means by which I get to Jesus. My marriage, my friends, my acquaintances, my close friends, those that are here, those that are out of state, those that are far, they all get me to Jesus. It means that my problems are the means by which I get to Jesus. It means my successes, my accomplishments are the means by which I get to Jesus. It means that my failures and my needs are the means by which I get to Jesus. Beloved, join me, please. Stop thinking that the gospel is just new principles to live by that you get to master and then you get the results you want. Help me fight that in my life. Let me help you fight that in your life and try to live as if you want to be mastered, owned, dominated by Jesus and the gospel. So that no matter, no matter what you're doing, you want to live in community in which you're understanding what Christ is doing in you. And that he's making you more like him. Stop trying to master the gospel and desire to be mastered by Jesus and the gospel. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you that on this day, we can know that you are ruling and reigning now. That you are watching over your church that you are in the midst of us, that you, Holy Spirit, are ministering the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory over our sin and victory over death itself so that we might live as followers of him in our day-to-day -day lives this week. Thank you, Father, that we are your children. Thank you that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you always complete what you start, and that this is by grace. We know this because Christ has come, and we pray in his name, amen. Beloved, if you would stand, the Lord wants you to know that you are a blessed people.
that he has things that he's promised to do in you and to you and through you because our Christ is alive. So receive this blessing and try to live as if you actually believe that it's true this week. The God of peace that raised Jesus from the dead. Because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will. It's even better. He's working in you what's pleasing in his sight. So that one day, all glory will redound to him forever. All because of Christ. Amen. Go in his peace.